In order to retire successfully, you'll need vision. You'll also need a plan to execute that vision. Welcome to Retirement Pathfinder with Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky. On today's show, we'll give you the tools you need to navigate unique challenges you'll face in retirement. It's time to chart your financial future. Retirement Pathfinder starts now. Well, hello and welcome in to the Retirement Pathfinder. Glad to have you back on the podcast. We have a good show for you today. We're going to be talking about 401k mistakes on the show. Uh, this going to be our main focus. we got a little bit of uh, ESG investing to talk beforehand. So let me first welcome in Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky over at Pathfinder Wealth. How are you both today? We're doing well. We're getting ready for the holiday season. Um, I don't have one Christmas gift purchased yet. <laughs> I don't know about Barb. Uh, I bet you that's because your wife does it all. Shh, you're giving away all my secrets. <laughs> I I am just about done. I am. I am. I'm. I'm kind of ahead of the game usually, Ben. So I actually decorated for Christmas um, about the first week in or second week in November. Wow, it's your way. <laughs> I'm one of those. I know. Too much time on your hands, Barb. Yeah, I'm so. somewhere somewhere between Barbara and Phil. That's where I I am. I've I've gotten some okay. of my shopping done. Decorations are out, but I still have some stuff to. To complete, so I'm in decent well, shape. I, I make up for it, though, Ben, because I'm I'm uh, making uh, toys for the kids in my workshop. So I'm I'm oh. like, uh, Santa with the little elves down there. there yeah, that's true too. You're doing those really special gifts. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Well, want to wish everybody a, a happy holiday season and hope you're able to enjoy it with family and friends. And uh, looking forward to the new year and, and a lot to come. So I want to first get started uh, today on the podcast about this ESG investing. I'm sure some people may may or may not have heard about it before. I'm It's actually kind of new to me, so I'm, I'm not that familiar, but I know y'all want to speak on it a little bit. Yes. Uh, the question is, what is ESG investing? Well, I really wasn't too aware of what ESG investing was until one of our clients brought up the subject earlier this year. And I told him that I would uh, spend some time, do some research on it and get back to him. Well, I want to Kind of disclose what's going on because it is becoming a big topic in in the financial uh, news department. Uh, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, which means running a company ethically. Now you got to kind of understand the theory behind this. Uh, I'm sure that we'd all agree that we would desire to invest our money in companies that help to uh, improve the environment, keep it cleaner, conserve resources, promote employee engagement. Uh, companies that stand for human rights and promote good co- community relationships. Who wouldn't want to invest their money in those kind of companies? And who wouldn't want to work for a company where standards are set high to protect against things like discrimination, corruption, unethical practices? So those are good, good objectives for companies to have, right? Well, now you can thank the Biden administration's initiative to mandate the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is really the financial cop on the beat. Mm-hmm. to create and enforce ESG rules and reporting. This is very interesting because uh, it has really taken on a life of its own. Once you get government involved, um, it does have a tendency to kind of morph a little bit. And so let's talk about this. Those promoting the virtues of ESG investing, as noble as the idea might be, may have their own ideas and definitions of what is green or environmentally necessary. Requirements for meeting a bureaucratic standard for how a company should be socially responsible may require a company to follow all kinds of subjective and non-measurable standards. How would how do you think it would affect the uh, the bottom line of a company if they were to hire on their board of, of directors 
trained environmental advocates or social warriors, Barb? Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, it'd be very costly, wouldn't it? Well, it would be costly, but but the question is, what would happen to the bottom line? Whose job uh, it would be to help that company meet what we consider unreasonable goals? And a lot of these particular standards are being developed as we speak. Right. Uh, yesterday, I heard an interview on uh, on Fox Business News between Larry Kudlow and one of the commissioners at the SEC who has oversight on creating and enforcing these ESG guidelines. The person's name is Hester Prince or Hester Pierce. And she was asked a question as to whether the SEC, SEC should even be um, involved or should have a role in running companies by conducting oversight of ESG policies. And her response was the SEC would have an impossible task to set and enforce such mandates. In fact, she says now, and she referred to her own her own department as being the Securities and Everything Commission. Mm, yes, that's pretty vast. Yeah, it is. I mean, one of the things that we have to realize here is that uh, you've got uh, things going on in the government that we're really kind of unaware of. Now, you do see this. It would appear that the administration clearly has an eye on uh, reforming public companies the way it is attempting to do the same thing in education, medicine, the IRS, athletics, and the traditional role of marriage. So mm -hmm. what do you think, Barb? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, Phil, I was reading about uh, some of this earlier in the year when I was reading about the World Economic Forum. They meet four times a year and, yep. and ESG is a big is a big deal. And it's a big subject uh, amongst them. And I was so surprised by it because it's uh, it's it's such a vast topic, and you know you can't help but think about well, what does this mean for if it trickles down to the small business? But uh, anyways, recently I was reading some information from a guy by the name of Tim Mullen. He's the former chief mm -hmm. executive of the Global Reporting Initiative. Been in the ESG business for thirty five years. So basically, he says standardizing the standards that companies use to report on sustainability. So what does this word sustainability mean? Well, there's five dimensions, including environment, social capital, human capital, business model, and innovation and leadership governance. In this article, he does even state that it's, you know, there's more talk than action on reducing confusion and burden with all of this, with all the reporting uh, uh, that this would, that would take place. It appears, Phil, that it looks like sustainability is kind of like a blanket word that covers just a number of these issues. Sure. You know, uh, so apparently they have developed standards for 77 industries, each of which includes disclosure and performance metrics. Now, there's additional categories depending on your line of business. So get this one, Phil. Comparability being one, and this is the example he used. An example is reporting on gender diversity versus greenhouse gas emissions. Both are considered within the scope of sustainability reporting. Well, yes. In fact, without getting political about this whole thing, one of the things they we have to really understand is that there's a lot of uh, diverse opinion about how to measure it. Oh yeah. And I, I, I spent actually to uh, just as a little side note here, I spent a couple hours looking at this and there's no real specific metrics either that I can right. come across. Right. Very, very subjective. To, yeah. They're trying to get all of these reporting agencies together and, and, and decide on, on how this is going to, going to happen. Well, it turns out that the ESG is already in place in uh, European countries uh, with 500 or more employees. Hmm. And the European uh, Union at companies with 500 or more employees and policymakers like you had mentioned, you know, uh, just recently with our current administration are increasingly requiring ESG disclosure around the world. 
Phil, you mentioned investor demand, and it really is kind of mind-boggling because record inflows to ESG funds in 2020 and the total tops $40 trillion, which is larger than the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. So if I look at, uh, like, you know, you've got your major asset managers like BlackRock that are contributing to a lot of pushing of companies to improve their ESG disclosures. Well, I wanted to get on BlackRock's website to just see, you know, what what is it uh, their disclosure is for ESG funds. So looking at their ETF and iShare funds, here's what their disclosure is. There's three things. One is to obtain exposure to global stocks aiming to advance themselves related to the United Nations sustainable development goals, Mm. such as education or climate change. You mentioned many more too, Phil. Uh, Target companies with leading ESG business practices that also build their business around products and services that may drive positive change. And used to increase exposure to sustainable themes in an equity portfolio. Bottom line is, Phil, then we say have to say, well, how does this affect our investors? Well, in spite of all the money pouring into these funds, when I'm looking at the BlackRock anyways, these funds are like one and two years old. Right, right. So will this be a requirement eventually to have these in our investment choice? It's not at all related to our investment philosophy of academic investing, which has been developed by prize-winning research, but it can't be ignored. And I think what it's worth for our listeners is I'd like to encourage you to research this topic. And um, and then also you can look and see who's on the board and uh, what maybe they may, what kind of stake that they may have in this with big companies like JP Morgan and, you know, BlackRock and probably Apple and Microsoft. And, and uh, you know, last year alone, over $500 billion flowed into ESG integrated funds. This is by JP Morgan uh, from last year. So we've got investors, not large institutions only. We've got individual savers through large institutions, Phil. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, Barb, that uh, you know the we're fiduciaries, and we have to make sure that we're getting the the best or highest returns we can get with the greatest amount of safety. And one of the things that we realize, and this is a big fear in the industry right now, is that because of the literally the trillions of dollars that have to go into improving companies to meet the ESG standards. The big fear is that it's going to reduce the overall returns of these companies. And that is that is mm-hmm. one of the things that we want to caution our clients about. We shouldn't be so ready to jump on. There seems to be kind of a, a herd mentality that's going on. If you Google ESG online, it, nothing but positive, glowing reports about the, uh, the ESG uh, movement and right. how we need to be involved with it. But when you take a closer look and look behind the curtain, there's some other hidden things there that we really need to take in consideration. And when people in the uh, the SEC uh, department themselves criticize or really look at this as being an overwhelming task to not only create but enforce the rules and go outside the purview of of the financial business to where we're trying to uh, you know to create social change in companies, that is really as as she said, there's the Securities and Everything Commission. Yeah. You know, it's like you said, the herd mentality is the newest thing, Phil. Yes. You know, it's it's the I don't want to be left out mentality. Yep. So I, we were talking about this earlier, but when, uh, you know, you and I were growing up, even started out in the financial business, we didn't have the Internet. And so, you know, we read books and, yep. you know, we read articles and we did our own research that way. But nowadays, you know, we have a lot of millennials and, you know, in the 30s and 40s that are serious investors investing in these companies. And because, you know, one person does it, then it's the next and, and there's nothing there, there. It's, it's like you said, the herd mentality. So it's, uh, it's, but, but it's viable because, and you can't ignore it, right? Because that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, and and uh, one of the things that we have to realize here is that uh, 
you know, whatever the administration couldn't get done through Congress, through congressional approval, they're trying to do an end run and go directly to the departments to mandate uh, new rules and the requirements on the part of of uh, businesses and schools and uh courts and medicine athletics the whole nine yards i mean this is something that is really looking to transform society as we know it today yeah you know what i think too would be a good idea phil you think that have our investors call us and even people even listeners and anybody that's just listening to this podcast yep. wherever you're located and we'd be we'd be um, curious as far as your insight in this. If this is a topic that you're familiar with, um, you are not familiar with, you'd like to become more familiar with. We're we're trying to get a feel for what the uh, public thinks out there. And so, please give us a call. Yeah, we're interested in what you think about it. And so, uh, give us a call, and we want to know what you think about ESG investing. Yeah, and that number, 815-399-9806. You can also schedule a meeting if you want to do that. Just go to pathfinderchat.com. But it's definitely in interesting uh, to kind of follow that and that new trend. And I think there is something to be said for, you know, you pointed out, you know, years ago, you would get your news by reading and and and, and looking at articles and stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, doing your due diligence, there's something to be said for that. I know this is great to have information at your fingertips, but it forces you a lot of times to act quicker than you need to. A lot of yeah. times before you could actually think through things, make a you know well thought out decision because you were taking your time because you had to, you didn't have any other choice. Uh, now it's, you can act instantaneously and get you in a lot of trouble. Mm. Yeah. Really yep. interesting. Exactly. All right. Well, let's transition into uh, our other topic we want to discuss today as we kind of get ready for the new year. And as you kind of think about, you know, your 401k and, and some things you might want to try to change about that or improve. We got a list of mistakes here. We got three we want to touch on. It's like, of course, isn't a full list of all the mistakes that commonly get made or the ones that you need to avoid. But we just highlighted three of the bigger ones today we want to talk about here on the show. And, it, you know, we know that the 401k is such a great tool, so effective for a lot of uh, people to save for retirement, but it is very easy and painless, which also means that it's easy to ignore for long periods of time, and that can lead to mistakes. So I want to cover a few with you right now, Barbara and Phil. Uh, first one, leaving money invested in a former employer's 401k plan instead of rolling it over into an IRA. Is that a mistake that you see a lot? Well, the response we get whenever we ask somebody why why have they moved not moved their money from a 401k to uh, an IRA by way of a IRA rollover, it's kind of interesting. Um, some of the answers are, well, I've never got around to it, or I haven't decided what to do about it, or it's too complicated, or even I didn't know I could move it. But in effect, what they're doing is they're neglecting that money machine, that instrument that's going to go ahead and produce wealth for them in the in the future. So they have to be very diligent about uh, about mining the mining the store with regard to four hundred one k rollovers. Uh, one of the other things we do too is we find that other people that have been kind of do it yourselfers, uh, where they uh, manage the four hundred one k on their own and they did fairly well with it. Um, they would ask the question, "Why should we move it?" Well, there are a number of re good reasons why. Uh, they should transfer to an IRA. So let's explore some of them. The first thing I see is simplicity. Uh, having several investment accounts, including old 401ks, uh, can get fairly complicated to, man to manage. In fact, uh, there may be a great amount of what we call overlap between each account, meaning that you have the same companies held in various separate 401ks and IRAs. I had the uh, honor of examining one retiree's portfolio recently and discovered that he had 60% of the same stocks held in 10 different retirement accounts. Well, you talk about overlap and duplication. Not only was he under-diversified right. and increasing risk, 
but he was also increasing the fees related to each of those particular accounts. And on the other hand, too, and if 10 mutual fund managers are trading the same stock in an uncoordinated way, it could end up becoming a real hodgepodge and less efficient. And there's really no academic evidence to show that uh, that the uh, investor will come out very well. So we recommend to consolidate all their accounts into a single IRA. And that way you can identify each asset class, whether it's U.S. large cap growth fund, U.S. small cap or small company growth fund or U.S. small company fund, a value fund, U.S. intermediary bond fund, et cetera. There's about 22 different asset classes that they can put money into. If they do that, um, then you as an investor, you can control and manage each asset class separately, thereby having true diversification, reduce costs, and not really be exposed to this overlap. So I've seen a few do-it-yourselfers that have tried to manage their own 401ks or IRAs, but quite frankly, I haven't seen a lot of academics, academically sound uh, methods for them doing so, which brings me to my second point, and that is a wider universe of holdings are available outside of a 401k. Uh, most people don't know that they are missing some of the greatest wealth-creating asset classes because these are not really included in their 401k. And the third biggest reason for doing a 401k rollover is professional assistance, uh, selecting the portfolio that will give you, the investor, the returns available that are available in the market. Part of the problem with uh, investors is that they don't know what they're missing. And so by not including these asset classes, they could be uh, foregoing many of the greatest returns out there. At Pathfinder, we designed the portfolio in order to give our clients the expected income they need without duplication or excessive risk. So, Barb, what do you think? Yeah, you know, uh, always limited selection for sure, isn't it, in a 401k, Phil? Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I'd add to that is uh, just be careful if you're going to roll it over pre-59 and a half. You may have to use other you know, alternate methods to access your money. And then I always say this when it comes to a 401k, always because it's um, it's important if you have an outstanding loan. Uh, if you leave that oh, yes. 401k, then you will be taxed in that year as ordinary income. All right. Very good. So, so one mistake to kind of avoid is if you do move companies, you have that option of rolling it over. So something to think about. And you definitely want to discuss that with your advisor. All right. Uh, next one. I know target date funds are, are a very popular investment. It does make you feel like you've got a customized solution that's really targeted towards the date that you think you're going to retire. So, hey, I want to retire in uh, 2035. All right, perfect. That target date fund is, is geared geared towards that. I don't really need to do much. It'll kind of take care of itself. But is it good? I, is it a good idea to put a lot of money into these target date funds? Yeah, you know, Ben, that is a good question. Well, let me just give you a little bit of history of target date funds. They debuted in 1994 as a simple solution for retirement savers. There are now 2,045 target date funds out there. They're a mutual fund based on the year that you plan to retire. So if you're 50, you're going to retire at 65, then you'd choose a 15-year out fund, basically 2037, but then likely you would choose 2035 since they come in multiples of five. The fund is act actively managed, uh, generally speaking. Well, some of the pros are that they're a simple solution for people who don't want to take the time to choose their own funds, and they just want a hands-off approach. Some of the cons of target date funds are they are not individualized for a person's specific situation. They treat every person the same who will retire in a certain year. However, every person's not the same. People have different income needs, lifestyles, and resources in retirement. And most importantly, people should have an individualized income plan when retiring, and target date funds can't do that. 
You also want to look into target date funds for their internal costs, their asset allocation, whether it's passively managed or actively managed. If it's passive, you would have more index funds, so it'd be less cost. If actively managed, you would have a money manager fee plus fees for each fund that they offer. And diversification. To be truly diversified, like Phil mentioned, you need to have exposure to different types of assets. Small companies, growth, large, value, etc., both U.S. and international markets. It's likely most of those target date funds have holdings slanted towards large growth. That's what we've typically found when we analyze those mm-hmm. these portfolios, right. Phil. So the final thoughts are, if you're an investor and you want to set it and forget it, target date funds are a simple solution to explore temporarily. Let me put that out there temporarily. With that being said, when you're within three to five years of retirement, have an income plan created for you. Once you leave the company, you'll want a tailor-made income plan, and then it may be time to look at other options besides your target date fund when you leave. Yeah, there's not so you know it's not such a bad thing to have a one and done or an automatic pilot kind of approach toward uh, accumulating those funds. But once you do get to retirement stage, Barb, um, we need to take into consideration the fact that those target date funds do not really do income planning. They don't do tax goal planning. Right. A lot of those things have to be done individually, as you mentioned. And uh, so we recommend that uh, you see uh, us about that and we can sit down with you and uh, design that plan that is uh, custom made for your particular needs and objectives. True. All right. So things to think about there. I got one more 401k mistake that you want to avoid here in the new year. Assuming that your fees and costs are minimal, because you don't ever see them on the statement very often. <laughs> yeah, that's a big assumption. Well, according to the Investment Company Institute, 401k plans held roughly $7 trillion in assets in March 2021. 401k assets represented about one-fifth of the $35 trillion U.S. retirement market. For comparison, in 2011, 401k assets were $3 trillion. So today, again, $7 trillion doubled, more than doubled in 10 years' time. Well, the U.S. Department of Labor defi- defines fees in three categories, investment fees, plan administration fees, and individual service fees. So many 401k participants pay, participants pay an average all-in fee of about 2.2%. Most 401k holders will pay a wide range that's anywhere between 0.2% and 5%. Now, Yale University says that anything above 1% is a ripoff. The Department of Labor just requires fees to be quote-unquote reasonable, and they don't specify a certain percentage. So fees will vary depending on the size of the company's 401k, the number of participants, uh, the employer's history. Larger companies with more employees tend to pay less. Good news is this. The DOL, the Department of Labor, introduced the fiduciary rule, and 401k fees have to be disclosed on statements. Do your homework on all of this uh, because you have to kind of s- seek out what's underneath um, all this be, be, uh, as far as uh, from a fee standpoint. It is very interesting, Barb, that when we sit down and talk to a, a retiree and they've got a 401k plan, one of the questions I ask them is, did you get much help or much advice while you were in your contribution stage in that 401k plan? And the answer uh, inevitably is no. We never got a, very much education on it, didn't right. know what we were doing, kind of said it and forgot it. And um, and that's really a shame. And part of the problem is that the government has really forced advisors out of the business uh, for the sake of trying to protect the investor against uh, being gouged by advisors. So what you're looking at is is no professional help available because, uh, quite frankly, uh, the government has made it uh, 
non-profitable for an advisor to go in there and, and uh, take care of the, the needs of that particular 401k participant. It's unfortunate. Yeah, there is no education. Uh, we've nope. asked that. And um, I think it started out to be years ago. But other than that, if other than basic reporting, maybe at the end of the year, that is it. That's about it. Um when people want to make changes to their plan, there's no coaching. There's no, there's no advice. There's no, but if the a, market goes down, what do I do? Yeah, there's you know, none of that. It's do like, I move a, it? Do I get it yep. in cash? What happens? Yeah. I've talked to people who says they just say, okay, what's the name of the fund you want to go into? So it's right. just, you know, it's just, just hit or miss. It is hit or miss. And they're, you know, they're, it is always good to have more education uh, for a lot of these things. And I uh, know that's the goal for this show too, is to help educate people along the way. So hopefully we did that with this. But again, these are all the 401k mistakes that you might, make with yours. But uh, again, if you have to, if you want to sit down and talk with Barbara and Phil and kind of go through yours and kind of see if there's any mistakes that you might be making, pathfinderchat.com is the best place to start. It's the place to schedule a meeting with Barbara and Phil right now, or you can call 815-399-9806. That's the phone number. So again, thanks for listening to the Retirement Pathfinder. Barbara and Phil, as always, we appreciate your time and uh, we hope you have a great holiday season. Yes. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You too, Ben. Well, thank you for listening to the Retirement Pathfinder. For Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky, I am Ben George. We'll talk to you in the next episode. Take care. Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.